Now I'd like to invite uh, Yin Yi to come up and give us our scripture reading this morning. Good morning. Um, today's scripture is Genesis chapter 2. <clears throat> the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up, closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Good morning, everyone. That's my son. <laughs> so the past few weeks, we have been looking at origins in the book of Genesis, and we've been talking about where we come from, what God's plan for us is, yeah? So we've been talking about God's plan for us, how he designed us, uh, how he made us to live. And one of the ideas that we keep coming back to in this series is that if, if human life is just a result of a cosmic accident in the universe, then it doesn't really matter how we live. We're all just the product of chance. But if we're created by God, if we're built by him according to his design, then there's a certain way that we are meant to live as his people. Being built a according to a plan and a design means there are right and wrong ways of operating, right? Like we, we know this on several different levels in life. Like a simple example, your car. If you have a car and it runs on, on gas for petroleum, petrol, I think we call it in Hong Kong. If your, if your car runs on petrol, you can't just decide one day, I'm going to start charging it at the electric vehicle charging station and expecting it to run on that. There's a way that it's designed to operate, and it doesn't work that way. And if you use it that way and ignore the design of the car, there are going to be consequences. Like at the most basic, simple level, you're going to run out of fuel and not be able to drive the car anymore. But if you really push it, there can be even worse consequences. Like, what does electricity create and produce? Sparks. If you're forcing that electric vehicle charger into your gas tank, and you accidentally make a spark, it's going to cause an explosion that will destroy your car, maybe severely injure you. It's bad news because you're ignoring the design. When we ignore the design of things, it has consequences. And so if we are built by God according to his design, then we are called to operate according to his design. And failing to do that using ourselves and the world that he's created the wrong way outside of his design is going to have consequences. 
And so today we're going to look at the design that God has given us, particularly when it comes to relationships. How has God designed us to relate to one another? And his design, we'll see, has huge implications for how we do that. So what we'll see today is that we are designed to live in relationships, including but not limited to marriage. We'll see we're made for relationships, we're equal but distinct, and then we have a model for marriage. But before we dig in and look at that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the things that it teaches us about you and us and the world that you've made and how you call us and invite us to live in this world. I pray that you would be speaking to us today as we look at your word. Help us to understand who you are. Help us to understand your plan and design for us and help us to uh, find joy in living in a way that's in line with that plan and design. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we see in today's passage in terms of how God's design connects to our relationships with one another is that we are all made for relationships. We're made to have connection with other people. Now, I know we all have different personality types. Some of us have capacity for more interaction with others than others. But at the most basic fundamental level, none of us is designed to do life alone. And that's not just because the world's a broken, messed up place and we need support from others to get through it. We actually see in today's passage, before the world becomes a broken, messed up place, God says in verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Which if you've been following the story of Genesis up to this point, that's a shocking statement. Because all along, from the start of the Bible up till this point, God makes something and he looks at it and he says, it's good, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And then this is the very first time that God looks at something and he says, not good. And what is it that that God looks at here and says, not good? It might be surprising. It's not sin. It's not that humans have disobeyed him and tried to usurp his authority. It's not that Satan is coming in and trying to disrupt his plan. It's the man's lack of companionship. God looks at that. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Now, why is the man being alone a problem? Well, on one level, we saw in Genesis chapter one, God, his plan for the man is to fill the earth. If you haven't taken high school health class, biology class, a man by himself cannot fill the earth. He needs a woman with him to fill the earth. A man cannot have children on his own. So on one level, he can't accomplish God's plan for him and for humanity on his own. He needs help to do that. But there's another level too, where it's not good for man to be alone. In Genesis chapter one, it says that humanity is created in God's image. And the Bible teaches that God is a relational God. Christians believe in a doctrine called the Trinity, which says there's one God who throughout eternity has existed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I know that's confusing. It sounds weird if you've never heard about it before, but it has some big implications for what that means to be human if we're made in God's image. It means because God is a Trinity, because it's not just one person, there's three in this one God, God himself has always lived in a perfect relationship of love throughout eternity. 
The Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and Son. They have this perfect relationship within and among themselves so that God at the most fundamental level is all about relationships. And this relationship within the Trinity is one where other persons of the same type as one another are able to experience the joy of loving and being loved by one another. So if humanity is made in the image of this God, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that like God, we are created for relationships with other people like us. Right? I mean, you think about at this point in the story, the man, he's in the garden, it's paradise on earth. He has a perfect relationship with God. There's nothing wrong there. He has a perfect relationship with all the animals around him. And there's still something missing. There's a problem that the man was unique. He was the only one of his kind. Yeah, he had God to relate to. Yeah, he had the animals to relate to, but he had no one else like him in existence that he could relate to. That's what the word alone here literally means, that there's no one and nothing else like him. The only one, unique. There was no one else like him to connect to. And so to not have other people around him, to not be able to love and be loved by others who are like him, it meant that he was missing out on a core part of what it means to exist in God's image. And so God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. And that has some big implications for our lives today. It means all of us need good friendships in our lives. All of us are created for relationships with other people like us. That doesn't have to be romantic. It could be friendships with family members like parents or siblings or children. It could be a romantic relationship. It could just be general friendships. But all of us need relationships with other people in our lives, people we can genuinely connect with. People who know not only like the, the perfect ideal us that we post on Instagram, but who know us at our worst. People who we can like call up on a bad day and be like, I'm having such a bad day and it's all my fault and I feel terrible and I don't know what to do. And who will just be like, yeah, I know how messed up you are, but I still love you, right? We need those types of relationships in our lives. We're created for those types of relationships. And again, different personality types will need more or less of those types of relationships, but all of us need at least one. We need people who know us, who love us, who we love them, who we're able to connect with. God has hardwired all of us with a need for this type of relationship in our design as human beings. So the first thing we see about God's design for us in terms of relating other people in this passage is that we're all made for relationships, not only romantic, but just companionship and friendship. The second thing we see in this passage is that men and women are equal but distinct. Equal but distinct. And I know that's a really controversial thing to say in today's world. But guess what? It's always been a controversial thing to say in this world, just for different reasons. You know, back in the ancient world, when, when this was written, and even in our world up to like maybe a hundred years ago or more recently in some parts of the world, this was controversial, controversial because everyone knew men and women were distinct, but everyone also knew that men were more valuable. And so to say that we're equal would be like, uh, hold on, what are you talking about? And now the pendulum has swung all the way to the other side where we in our world know men and women are equal. 
but we're so convinced that men and women are absolutely equal in every way that we don't even think there can be distinctions between them anymore. And so now in our world, it, it no longer matters who you date. You can date a man or a woman because they're the same. They're interchangeable. If you're living in a man's body, but you actually feel more like a woman, you can get surgery to change yourself because men and women are completely equal, no distinction, nothing to separate us, completely interchangeable. And so the story of creation actually challenges both the ancient world and our modern world. It challenges all of the world's ways of living. It challenges the ancient world by saying we're truly equal. Men and women have no one gender has more value or importance than the other one. We are equal. And yet it challenges our world today by saying we're distinct. The different genders are not interchangeable. They're not identical. And so let's, let's break that down one step at a time. So first, the man and the woman, they're equal. How do we see in the passage that they're equal? Well, they share the same humanity. We see this in verse 23. God creates the woman. He brings her to the man. And the man, his first recorded words in the Bible, he's so excited. There's someone else like him. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He's seen all the different types of birds and animals that God has made. He, he's named them and he's come to the conclusion and made the judgment, none of them are fit for me as my companion. They're all different on a fundamental level. But when the woman comes and stands before him, instantly he knows she's like me. We are equal. And this, this equality between man and woman, it was actually planned by God from the very start. You see in verse 18, God said, it's not good the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That word fit for him means that she's able to stand in front of him as a companion and is equal. So when the woman comes and stands before the man, they're, they're equal. They share their humanity. And because they share their humanity, they share dignity and worth. They share God's image. They share value. No one gender has more of God's image than the other. No one gender has more value than the other. Men and women are equal, which has huge implications for us today. It means everyone, man, woman, transgender, every person has worth and value and dignity and needs to be treated in ways that show that that's true. We all bear God's image equally. And yet, despite the fact that man and woman are equal, they're also distinct. And we see that in a few different ways in this passage. One of them being right there in verse 18, when God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. God says he's creating the woman as the man's helper. Never in the Bible is a man described as a woman's helper. So despite the fact that we're equal in worth and dignity and value and humanity, God calls men and women to different roles. And, and what does it mean that the woman is the man's helper here? It means she's there to help the man in fulfilling God's task for him. That apart from her, the man is incapable of doing what God has called him to do. But with her help, it's going to be possible. It's a very, very important job. She shares his responsibility to make sure the job gets done and gets done right. And I realize some of you right now might have like alarm bells going on in your heads. Like, hold on. If, if she's the man's helper, how can you say they're equal? Doesn't that by default mean that she's like somehow less valuable or inferior to him? 
And the answer to that is no. And you know how I know? Because over and over again throughout the Bible, God is called our helper. So if the woman is less valuable for being a helper, then God is less valuable for being our helper. And that can't be true. So we see just a few examples. There are several more, but in Exodus 18, four, Moses names his son Eleazar, for he said, the, Lord, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Or the passage we looked at in our call to worship today in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Or the passage that we were looking at in our prayer time today, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Being a helper only makes someone less valuable if God is less valuable for being our helper, which can't be the case. If anything, actually being called a helper in the Bible is is a sign of honor because it shows that we're like God. It aligns us with him. So man and woman, we are equal, but we're called to distinct roles. And, And one of those roles, distinctions, within marriage that we see here is that in marriage, the man is called to be the leader. Now I'll show you where I get this in the passage in just a second, but first I need to make a couple quick comments about it. First, when it says the man is the leader, it's talking about the marriage relationship. It's not talking about relationships across the board. It's not saying all men are leaders of all women. It's not saying it's wrong for a woman to ever be a man's boss in the workplace. It's saying within the context of marriage, God calls the man to be the leader. And the man being the leader doesn't mean the wife needs to just like close her eyes and blindly follow wherever he leads, right? Like God, we see here, God gives the wife to the man as a helper. Sometimes the the most helpful thing a wife can do is tell her husband, you're being an idiot right now in a kind and loving way. But sometimes men need to hear that, right? Being the man being the leader never means the wife should follow her husband into disobeying God. It means the man is first among equals, that when your marriage is at a decision needs to be made and you're at an impasse and and there's no snapping out of this just stalemate, his vote is the tiebreaker. And again, that's not for the sake of getting what he wants. It's actually for the sake of serving his family. If you read through the rest of the Bible, it's very clear. God doesn't give this responsibility to men so they can just get their way all the time. He actually gives this responsibility to men so they can lay down their lives, sacrifice their desires for the good of the family. So that being said, where do I get the idea in this passage that the man is called to be the leader in the family? Well, first we see here that the man names the woman. Throughout the whole creation story, we've seen that naming things is a sign of authority over them. So in Genesis chapter one, as God creates all these different things, he names them, the, the light and the darkness, the day and the night, the sea and the dry land. He names each thing as he creates it. And then here, God gives the man authority over the world that he has made. And, and what's part of the man's job? To name all the different animals, to show that he has authority over them. And then we get to verse 23. The woman is brought to the man. And what happens? The man names her. He says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The fact that God has the man name the woman as opposed to naming her himself and just telling the man, this is what you're going to call her, shows that God expects the man to exercise some form of leadership and authority in that marriage relationship. Second, we see that the man is the leader in a situation that's introduced here, but becomes more developed in the next passage. 
the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we saw today, God speaks to the man and says, you can eat from any tree in the garden except this one. The day you eat of it, you're going to die. But did you notice when he gave that command, he gave it to the man only and the woman hadn't even been created yet. She wasn't around. And that may not seem like a big deal until we get to chapter three. Because in chapter three, what happens? The woman eats from the tree and then she shares with the man who's with her and God comes to confront them about it. And he says, where are you? And something that the English language can't really convey to us, but the Hebrew language shows us is that when God says, where are you? The you is a singular masculine, which if you're not a grammar nerd, let me explain. Singular means he's looking for one of them, not both of them. Masculine means the one he's looking for is the man, not the woman. Despite the fact that they both disobeyed his command, despite the fact that the woman disobeyed the command first, when God comes looking for them to hold them accountable for their actions, he is looking for the man. Now, why? Why is God only looking for the man? Because God set the man up as the leader in the family. God gave the command to the man. He expected the man to be in charge of making sure that the family obeyed. When the command is broken, God sees it as the man's fault, even though he wasn't the first one to do it, but it's his fault because it happened on his watch. God expected the man to be operating as the leader in the family and disaster comes upon the world because the man refuses to lead in the way that God called him to. So men and women fully equal in humanity, equality, like dignity, worth, value, but God calls us to distinct roles. And again, this has big implications for our lives today. It means that our, our genders are not 100% interchangeable, right? There are, there are distinctions between us. We as humans don't have the right to choose whether we marry a man or a woman because God has created our genders different from one another so that men are called to marry women, women are called to marry men. And to ignore that is to operate outside of God's design and it brings consequences. It also means God didn't just put you in the biological body, he put you in by mistake. If you decide to, to change your biological gender, then you're operating outside of the design that God has made you to operate in. And as I say this, I, I just wanna make a couple of quick comments. If there's anyone here who is, is attracted uh, or inclined towards an LGBT lifestyle, um, first, if you're here and that's you, we love you, we're so glad that you're here with us today. Second, the Bible distinguishes between attraction and temptations that we can't control and actions that we can control. Being attracted to people of the same gender doesn't mean that you need to act on those attractions. Feeling like you're a better fit in the body of the opposite gender doesn't mean that you need to go get surgery so that you now have the body of the opposite gender. Facing temptation is not simple. Jesus himself was tempted several times throughout his life. Where it crosses the line is when we feed that temptation or when we act on that temptation. And so if you look at, you know, there are people who have a natural inclination towards alcoholism and God calls them to exercise self-control and not get drunk. There are people who have a natural inclination towards anger and God calls them to exercise self-control and act in love towards other people. And in the same way, there are people who have natural inclinations towards LGBTQ lifestyles, and God calls them to exercise self-control in not acting on those impulses. And if you have acted on them in the past, 
God offers you forgiveness and a new way of living today. And I'm not saying that resisting this is going to be easy. It's going to be hard. But if you're trying to honor God with your sexuality, you're not alone. Like Jesus, he died to rescue us. He understands what it's like when when God's path for your life is really, really, really hard. And he's with you if you're trusting in him in this process. And God has given you a church family to support you as you seek to navigate what, what it looks like to live a life where you use your sexuality in a way that honors God. So if you're here and you're trying to follow Jesus, but you're struggling with the same-sex attraction or other inclinations towards LGBTQ lifestyle, please don't face it alone. You have a church family here who wants to walk alongside you as you figure out what it looks like for you to live for God and honor him. And we're here for you and we love you. So God made men and women fully equal, but distinct. And so it's not our right to to mix and match genders as if they're completely interchangeable because that's outside his design. And again, if you're here and you're like, Eric, your logic isn't making sense. We, We all know equal but distinct isn't a real thing. Like if there's distinctions, that means there's not true equality. If you're feeling like that's the case right now, remember whose image we're made in. God who is Trinity. And what is the Trinity? The Trinity is a relationship of three persons who are equal but distinct from one another. They're equal, the Father, Son, Spirit, all fully God, all equally deserving of praise and worship and glory and honor, and yet they're distinct. The Father did not become human and die for us. Jesus did. The Father and Jesus don't live inside of Christians today to guide us in our day-to-day life. The Spirit does. And during his life on earth, Jesus completely submitted to the authority of the Father. There was a leadership structure in place in this relationship between equals. The Father was serving in the leadership role and Jesus followed him. Jesus says in John 28, or sorry, John 8, 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, when Jesus says this, does that mean he's less valuable than the Father? No, they're both fully God. They're equal, but they're distinct. And if we as humanity are made in the image of a God who exists in a relationship of equality but distinction, then we should expect that our relationships with one another will in some way parallel that relationship where we have equality but distinction. And so this passage teaches us that men and women, we are equal but distinct. And the third thing we see about our relationships in this passage is that it gives us a model for biblical marriage. We see the first marriage ever right here in this passage. And when you get to the New Testament, someone like Jesus or Paul, as they're talking about what God designed marriage to look like, this is the marriage that they constantly point back to. For them, for for Jesus, God in human flesh, when he talks about what marriage should be like, he doesn't just look back at this as an example of a marriage in the past. He looks back at the marriage in this passage as the model that God has given us for all other marriages to look like. Which means if we want to understand what God's plan and design is in our marriages, we need to look at this marriage as our example. And the first thing we see about marriage from this example is that God designed it to be one man and one woman for life. Like, think about it. God looks at the man. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. God could have done anything he wanted to provide the man companionship. 
He could have given the man another man. He could have given the man six women. He could have given the man a dog. He did none of those things. He gave the man one woman because God's plan for marriage is that it would be one man and one woman committing to each other for life. And as the passage teaches us about God's plan for the ideal marriage, it gives us three verbs that describe what, what our part is in that marriage. The verbs are leave, hold fast to, and become one flesh. Leave, hold fast to, and become one flesh. So the first verb is leave. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, just to clarify, it doesn't mean you need to physically move out of your parents' house. Right? In the culture that this was written in, actually, when, when they got married, the wife would move into the husband's house and live with his extended family. So it's not saying that you're doing something wrong if you live with your parents or your in-laws after you get married. But it does mean there's a reorientation of your priorities. Like men, after you get married, if your mom wants you to do something and your wife wants you to do something else, all other things being equal, your wife gets priority now. <laughs> we have some very excited wives in the room right now. <laughs> or if you're having a fight with your spouse, you don't bring your parents in to, to referee and, and be the judge who can give you the winning verdict, right? There's a new, a new unit that's formed when you get married, which means that, that your spouse, not your parents, is now your primary family connection. So marriage involves a reorientation of our primary family relationship, that our spouse is now number one, not our parents, not our siblings. The second verb is to hold fast to. The man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This, this word hold fast to, it's a covenant word. It, it connects to making promises to be committed and faithful and following through on those promises. It's an attitude that comes into the marriage saying, no matter what the future holds, we're going to go through it together. I've got you. In marriage, there's no room for leaving yourself an escape hatch or an out. It's an all-in commitment. We're supposed to hold fast. This verb also refers to the day-to-day -day living out of your relationship. It's about having a connection with one another that like, if people see you together, or, or know you, they know that you're connected in a relationship. They can see that you are a team, that you go together, that people around you can look at you as a couple in a relationship and be like, yes, they have a relationship with one another. We are to hold fast to one another, to make a promise to be there for one another the rest of our lives and follow through on that promise each day. And then the third verb is become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now, obviously, in marriage, this happens physically through sex. That's God's design is that lifelong committed context of marriage is the only one where we're designed to have sex. But within the context of marriage, sex is, is a central part of God's plan and design for that relationship. But when it talks about becoming one flesh, that's not all it's talking about. See, marriage is about a transformation where each partner becomes so closely connected to the other person that the two of you begin to function as one unit. Not that you cease being an individual, but that you're so closely connected as two individuals that you're functioning as one unit. You're so closely connected to the other person that if you were to lose them through death and divorce, it'd feel a little bit like you're losing part of yourself. You're really functioning as a team. 
You have a, a, such a deep love for one another that you share your most valuable possessions with one another. In our world, maybe that looks like giving each other passwords and login information for your different devices and accounts online. It could look like combining your bank accounts, putting your, both of your names on there so that you have, both have access to everything. There's not one person keeping their stuff away from the other. There's no more room for yours and mine because we're one. And all of these verbs, when they operate properly, leaving and holding fast and becoming one flesh, when that happens, what's the result? Well, we see in verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. When they're doing these things, they have absolutely nothing to hide from one another. Physically, emotionally, financially, internet search history, nothing to hide. They have a deep peace with one another, not because there's like hostility and conflict under the surface, but they've decided to just act nice around one another. They have deep peace and relationship because they have no hostility. They have nothing to hide, nothing to keep from one another. I mean, doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like the type of marriage you'd like to have? And isn't that the problem? Like it's the marriage we'd all like to have, this perfect partnership and commitment and connection, nothing we feel that we need to hide, nothing being hidden from us. And yet how many of us can say like day in, day out, that's our experience of marriage? None of us. And you know why? See, this passage, doesn't, doesn't that just have such a happy ending right here? That they're connected, they're married, they're naked, they're not ashamed. Everything is going wonderfully, right? But actually, there's some really dark foreshadowing happening right here. If you look at the story, even verses 24 and 25, the man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife that she'll become one flesh. So there's a connection, they're becoming one. And then we get to verse 25 and what do we see? The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What happened to them being one? Why are they two units again? It's foreshadowing, it's, it's warning us, something is gonna go wrong. Or in verse 25, when it talks about them being naked and unashamed, it's foreshadowing that just a few verses from now, they're gonna be deeply ashamed of the fact that they're naked. Despite the fact that this passage ends on a seemingly really happy high note, it's actually setting us up for some really dark tragedy because conflict is about to come into marriage and all relationships. And that conflict, it's gonna bring shame, it's gonna bring hiding, it's gonna bring fighting, and it's not just reality in the story of the Bible, it's a reality in all of our lives. But guess what? There's still hope for our marriages and our relationships. And you know why? Because throughout the Bible, over and over and over again, God himself is referred to as the perfect husband. We, as his people, are shown to be his wayward wife who keeps running off, who keeps turning her back on him. And he, as the perfect husband, again and again and again, chases us down to rescue us. If we look at Jesus, God in human flesh, he lives out these three verbs of marriage perfectly. He leaves. We're told in the New Testament that Jesus leaves the comfort of heaven, leaves the, the presence of God that he has lived in for eternity to come to earth and find us. Hold fast. Jesus makes a commitment to us and holds fast to us. Even though the price he has to pay as a, as a bride price is his life. He's willing to pay it in order to have that commitment and covenant with us so he can hold fast to us. And then become 
one flesh. Jesus unites himself with us. He becomes one with us. He goes so far as to put his Holy Spirit inside of us so that he is now living inside of us and we are connected to him. The, the way the New Testament describes this over and over is something called union with Christ. It says we are in him. He connects himself with us. And by doing this, Jesus covers our shame. Any shame we carry for anything we've done wrong, it's borne by Jesus so that we don't have to carry it anymore. There's a theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He argues that the shame comes to us because we stop being content to give ourselves to one another and instead we try and own and possess one another. So in the garden, God creates Adam and Eve to be in this relationship where each of them gives themselves fully to the other person and that's it. You, you give yourself fully and when they give themselves fully back, you have this wonderful, awesome relationship. But when sin comes into the world, what happens? Now I want to control my wife. It's not enough for me to just give myself to her. I need to see a smile on her face in response to it. I need to see appreciation for what a great husband I am. I need to see her doing things to pay back the kind things that I've done to her. It's no longer enough for me to just give myself to her. I need power over her. I need to control her. I need to own her. And, and even if that ownership is something as simple as just putting a smile on her face, it's no longer enough for me to just serve her for the sake of serving her and loving her. It's always about what I can get back out of it. And when the relationship becomes about what I can get back from it, all of a sudden I'm not free to be completely open and honest with her because what if she learns this truth about me and stops smiling at me? What if she learns about the mistake I made and gets upset with me instead? I, I'm no longer free to share these things with her. I have to hide them from her so that I can keep controlling her, keep getting the outcome from her that I want. And as I hide these things, I feel bad. And I'm, I'm scared about what if she finds out. I feel like I need to cover it up. That's where shame comes from. We hide things about ourselves so we can control and own and manipulate others so that we can possess them. And yet, when Jesus comes as the perfect spouse, what does he do? He offers us full acceptance with no strings attached. He knows all our failures. He knows all our shortcomings. There's nothing we can hide from him. And he doesn't look at them, us and judge them, judge us for them. He looks at us in our failure and shortcoming and rescues us. He gives himself freely and fully to us with no strings attached. And when we experience that love, that sets us free from shame because there's no need to hide anything anymore. Jesus knows us perfectly and loves us perfectly. And that means I can, I can be free to love my wife freely because I've already been loved perfectly. Even if she doesn't respond the way that I want, God has smiled at me. And so I can keep loving her. I can keep being honest with her. I can keep not hiding from her because I have this relationship with Jesus. He sets us free from our shame so that we can love our spouses and hopefully take steps towards getting back to this relationship that we were created for, where as a couple, we can leave our parents, hold fast to one another, become one flesh, and be free from shame, being completely known and completely loved in that relationship with one another. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you created us in your image and gave us such dignity and value by doing that. Thank you for creating other people in your image as well so that we have people like us that we can connect with 
and love and have relationships with and be loved by. God, forgive us for the times that that our relationships with others, whether it's in friendships, whether it's in romantic relationships, where we have operated outside of your design for relationships. I pray that you would help us to to live each day with, with your perspective on relationships so we can love one another in the way that you call us to and experience the blessing of living life according to your design. Thank you, Jesus, that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen.